This morning, we are going to look at a passage in Mark, and we're going to use it to take a step back a little bit and talk a little about context. The next few weeks, as those of you who have been with us know, we're sort of marching, or I'd say through, it's more around the New Testament, um, talking once, sort of one book at a time um, about the general concepts and ideas that we find in each of those books so that by the end of that project, we have a good idea about what each of those are about. And so as we go to read them, we can understand and have some idea of the context of the words that we're actually reading. So we're, we are certainly not talking about every issue to be found in any of these books, but trying to sort of highlight and give a very high level overview of what's going on. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the gospels. Uh, and today we're going to pick a piece from Mark. Um, and we're going to do that in order to talk about the Pharisees because they loom large in the back of all four Gospels. And if you know about Paul, who was Saul, you know that he was actually a Pharisee himself. And so much of our New Testament deals with the conversations that are surrounding uh, the interaction between Jesus, of course, and the Gospels and the early church and the Pharisees, which were the sort of most prominent uh, school of Judaic thought. Certainly the, the early church was going... Uh, sort of coming about and, and finding its legs. Um, and so it's, it's, it's crucial to understand what that thought was, what they were saying, or the, the ideas that they had in order to understand what Jesus was trying to say in opposition and what the early church was trying to say in opposition to them. So today we're going to take this uh, chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through 17 from Mark. And it's just one of the many, many times Jesus kind of comes up against the Pharisees. It's one of the first in Mark. Um, and it reads as, as follows. It says, And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. If you have a Bible, and I've, I saw actually a couple of them around this morning, um, and you flip that Bible open in the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, and you see a bunch of red letters, what does that mean? Those are Jesus' words, right? And a lot of Bibles don't have them in red, but many of them do, and it, it's a nice sort of Attent, calls your attention to the fact that, hey, Jesus is saying something. And so as you flip it open, you can kind of go right to what uh, our gospel writers have recorded Jesus as saying. Um, and if you pay attention to those red letters, it's actually a group called the Red Letter Christians. And they, they sort of focus themselves directly on the words of Jesus as the foundation of the faith, which I think is probably, that sounds right, right? Um, hopefully all of us would agree with that. Um, but a lot of those, those sections of red letters or I heard one guy say that they're red because they're hot. And they're hot because a lot of times they're controversial, they're conflict, they're words that Jesus is uttering in response to a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe that has come to him and asked him a question, or he's seen something that he doesn't like. Think about in John when he goes into the temple and he's braided this whip and he clears it. Like They're not always kind and calm. They're not just sort of stoic words. They, a lot of these words are uh, packed with emotion and um, 
and some heat, as this guy said. He says they're red because they're hot a lot of times. And a lot of those conflicts, as, I've, as I mentioned, are with religious leaders, and most of those happen with a group known as the Pharisees. And so one of the questions we're asking today, as I said, is who were those Pharisees? And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit, and then we're gonna jump into the scripture in particular. Um, the Pharisees, if, if I said to you, who was a Pharisee, what would, you, what would your answer be? What, sorry, a religious leader? If I asked you to characterize them and their way of thinking, what, what would that be? Very strict. Anything else? All that's right. They are religious leaders, um, and they are strict. As I was growing up and I was learning about Pharisees, and I'm guessing a lot of you sort of had this experience too, we were taught that Pharisees were the strict religious leaders who cared about uh, towing the line and making sure that everybody uh, did the right thing and they cared only about doing the right thing. And it was all about either getting you to conform to their way of thinking or you seeing them as being holy and getting the reward and, and, and being sort of glorified for them being holy. And that is ultimately, we know now certainly as we have uncovered much or many of their writings and, and, and discussions that they were having at the time um, and, and come to a greater understanding about what they were saying and thinking, um, it's, un it's an unfortunate caricature that the church has had for several hundred years now, um, and perhaps longer than that. The reason that Jesus argues with them so much is actually because he shares more in common with them than anyone else. If you think about your life, you tend to argue and fight with, a lot of, in a lot of instances, the people that you're closest to. The <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's, I'll take that as an amen, right? <laughs> um, and in and a lot of instances, you have the closest arguments and you're, you're more inclined to engage with the people that you are closest to. So think about we as a community are more apt to enter into discussions that are con conflictual with each other than we are some random stranger, right? Um, as you interact on Facebook, you tend to interact with people May, they may be around topics or posts or things that other people have done, but it's usually a friend or someone that you have a lot in common with and you, you, know, you agree with 80% of it, but this little bit over here is now a hot topic. And those are the people that you butt up against because it's a lot easier just to kind of like write off the people that you agree not at all with, right? Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with why Jesus and the Pharisees come into such conflict because in the end, they're actually trying to accomplish the same thing. Okay, um, when these stories are being written, we realize that obviously the story as it is told happened you know, in that sort of 30, 80 period, but these stories are being written then 40, 50, 60, 70 years after that. And if you go back to our sort of history, intertestamental history, we talked about Judaism and the ways that they responded to the Roman Empire. In 70 AD, you remember that the, the temple fell when that happened, there's another group that we read about known as the Sadducees. They're one of the other competing sects within Judaism that are struggling or you know, struggling for power. Uh, but they, they, their whole sort of focus is the temple and temple worship. And they have their power because they're the ones that control the temple. When the temple falls, they sort of disappear. They don't, I mean, they're, they're still around, but they don't have a temple to center their worship around or their power or their leadership around. And so they're kind of, they kind of fade out. And who's left is the Pharisees. So not only is Jesus likely interacting with the Pharisees more than the Sadducees, um, but when the church is writing, it's the Pharisees that are still around. 
And it's the Pharisees that the Jewish Christians, early, early Christianity was a sect within Judaism. And so it's the Christians and the Pharisees who are butting heads. They're together in the synagogues. They're together worshiping. And, and much of the early church who were Jewish still retained a lot of their Jewishness. And so they were butting the heads. And so um, as, we're, as these things are being written, there's a lot of that going on in the background too. Um, there were likely several thousand of these Pharisees that we, that we know of around the area. I mentioned the Sadducees were primarily in the temple. The Pharisees were all over the place. So they were in Jerusalem, but a lot of their existence happened out in the rural areas. And so they were sort of all over the area of Judea. And so they became the sect or the, the sort of the Jewish leaders of the people, whereas the Sadducees were in Herod's court and had his ear in Jerusalem in the temple. Um, but the Pharisees were about Israel's restoration. That was their goal. Their goal was not uh, purity for purity's sake. It wasn't a legalism that said, that's just the way it is. It has to be that way. It was all about, we have to be holy because it is in becoming holy as a nation that we pave the way, we make the path straight for the God to come back and restore Israel. So for them, they were a renewal movement. So their whole goal was the same. Like I said, it's the same thing as Jesus. Jesus was all about the renewal of God's people, right? The restoration. That's what the Pharisees were after. They were just after it in a different way. And it's that tension there that comes into conflict with Jesus and what Jesus is teaching. Their, their purity codes were not then uh, just a, a ladder in order to climb to heaven or to get uh, sort of public praise. Um, they were boundary markers as they had been in the Old Testament. We act like this, we wash our hands, we don't eat pork, we circumcise our, our, boy, our young boys and men. We do all these things because these are the things that set us apart from paganism, from the rest of the world, <clears throat> that make us God's people. And when we can again become God's people is when God will return to us. And so it was all about making that sort of separation, that distinction, becoming a holy people again, so that God can come and re restore Israel. And so that was their purpose. Um, and, and they were saying to be restored as God's people, we must act like it. So that was, the, that was their thrust. And so when you hear them talking about all the rules and regulations, uh, it, it all has to do, and it, kinda, it comes from a good place. And that place is we want God to be back with us. We want that restoration that God has promised, and we need to do our part. Remember, there's a covenant in place. When God's people follow the covenant, they're blessed by God. And when they don't, they suffer. And they see all of the exile over the last couple hundred years, which we've talked about uh, over and over as a result of their covenant unfaithfulness. And they're trying again to be faithful to that covenant in order to be renewed by God. Um, there, were, uh, uh, there were actually within the Pharisees, there were other groups. Two of the big ones that we know of are schools of Shammai and Hillel. And the school of Shammai was um, a much more rigorous, legalistic school. Um, they were much more about purity. Uh, they were more zealous. So, and then the school of Hillel was much more what we would call sort of a liberal group. They were much more open to foreigners. Um, they were much uh, kind of looser with their, I want to say loose, but more grace-filled grace with their interpretation of the law. Um, and that's important because when we come to, to read about Paul in Acts, uh, Acts meant, or Paul mentions in, towards the end of Acts that he was from the school of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was out of the school of Hillel, which is sort of the, the easier, sort of more lax group, um, which is interesting because Paul himself acts much more like the school of Shammai. So it may be that he studied under uh, Gamaliel and the Hillel, sort of the, the, 
sort of more loving group, but he certainly acts in Acts as he watches Stephen's death and then turns to go persecute the church as if he's come out of the school of uh, Shammai. They were the school that the zealots found a home in. They were much more uh, likely to become violent in their response and take up arms. Uh, And it would be, like I said, the zealots that we learned about a few weeks ago that would kind of become akin to the school of Shammai. And they were the ones that would become revolutionaries and ultimately fight Rome and cause its downfall and destruction, which we learned about. Um, so just an interesting distinction, even within the Pharisees themselves, there were all of these sort of competing ideas, uh, which makes the whole picture, the reason I tell you all that is the picture is complex. It's not as easy as Sunday school wants you to think it is. Um, but what is certainly true is that in no way did Jesus reinforce the Pharisees' concepts of holiness and their purity codes Uh, that they would put out there as being um, necessary for the renewal of of Israel by God. And and that's where the conflict comes in, is how do we understand that tradition of holiness as we try to renew Israel? And that's what this scripture that we're reading today is all about. So we're going to dig into that now. Um, And I want to start by sort of painting the picture for you. Um, When... When, we're, when we read that, that he was sitting, right? He's sitting, dining in Levi's house. Uh, that sitting is, if you've seen pictures of sort of Greco-Roman worlds where they sort of like recline, that practice of sort of like laying down at dinner has uh, worked its way into first century. So it's, it's sort of like a very relaxed, sort of chill atmosphere. Um, it's like a family dinner. There's obviously lots of people there, but it's this sort of like big gathering at Levi's house. Um, it could be, it's thought to be sort of, a, Levi may have been throwing a celebration because Jesus has, you know, super rabbi has called him, has, has talked to him, has, has even deigned to uh, interact with him at all. And he's thrown, kind of thrown this party. Um, and we're told that Jesus is sitting or reclining to dine with Levi and sinners and tax, all these tax collectors. Um, what does it mean to dine with in this culture? Do you know? It's not just, hey, we're gonna have dinner and talk. Right? It, it has a social and, and social implications. And to, to dine with someone, to eat with someone, to share a meal with someone is to accept them, is to say, you're part of my family. And this is one of the reasons in uh, sort of post-resurrection in, I know in, the, in Galatians, Paul references this debate he has with Peter that happens in Antioch because prior to the moment when others had from Jerusalem, excuse me, had come to Antioch, Peter had been hanging out with the, the Gentile Christians when they show up, Peter kind of like steps back and says, oh, I don't want to eat with you. And the reason he says that is because he's kind of embarrassed by the sort of the purists coming from Israel, the Jewish Christians. He's embarrassed and doesn't want to imply that somehow he's accepting of these Gentiles because there's still this debate going on about how do we as Jewish Christians interact with and relate to Gentile Christians. And what is it, you know, that's when we get into this discussion about circumcision and all that in, the, in Galatians. But uh, there's that moment where, Peter and Paul have this spat argument about whether or not it's okay for a Jewish Christian to dine with, to eat with a Gentile Christian. That's all about who's in, who's part of the family. Who can we accept and who do we need to reject? Where are those boundary markers, right? Um, And so for Jesus here to be sort of reclining in Levi's dining room with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors is to say that Jesus, the son of man, the son of God, uh, God himself incarnate, accepts these people which you can imagine if you're a Pharisee, 
that doesn't sit quite right with you, right? Because these are all the people that you would want to separate yourself from. Um, and then we're told, of course, that Levi is a tax collector. What do you know about tax collectors at this time? Sorry, we're dishonest. How are they dishonest? Do you, know, do you know what that means? I mean, you're right. They embezzled and they stole, absolutely. So tax collectors, like who's collecting taxes? Let's just ask that. Who are the taxes for? Rome, okay? So to be a tax collector is to work for the Roman Empire. And so if you're a Jew, like Levi is, acting as a tax collector, right away you've got a problem because you're essentially betraying your people, right? You have gone and worked for the enemy, right? We, we mentioned that given what Rome had done, uh, desecrating the temple, and obviously they're the great oppressor, they were seen as the great evil. And uh, as a result of that, for you as a Jewish person to go, Levi as a Jewish man, to go work for the, the empire is, was seen as a betrayal. So right out of the gate, we're, we're in trouble. So um, he was, tax collectors were very much hated because they were traitors, because they would embezzle money. Um, but what their job was, the way that taxes got collected, uh, there were at least three ways that we know. One was like a customs tax. So as you moved in and out of territories or sit, towns or cities, if you're, care, if you're carrying sort of grain or, or livestock, or whatever, there would be a tax on whatever it was that you were bringing in or out of those cities. So they would sit at the gates and they would collect taxes based on the value of the thing that you were tr transferring or carrying with you. Um, there were also tolls, just like our toll roads, so that as you move from one, to, so if you move from Galilee down into Judea, so you traveled from Nazareth where Jesus uh, was, you know, grew up down into uh, Jerusalem, you would, you would change territories. And as you traveled that road, there would be a tax collector with Roman guards around him and you would be obligated to pay a tax. Um, and the other one was the periodic head tax and that becomes the issue when they come to ask Jesus, what do you do with a the tax? They're talking about the head tax and this was an annual tax. It was not much. It was a single denarius. So it was one day's salary or one day's pay for most people. And it was just a tax for the privilege of being a Roman citizen. How nice, right? right? It wasn't on anything. It was just, you're a Roman citizen, Give us a day of your you know, day's wage. And so those are at least three ways that we know that they were taxed. So Levi would have been collecting one, perhaps all or multiple forms of tax, but you can imagine that his interactions on a daily basis probably aren't the, the nicest things, right? If, if you're basically betraying, if I was coming to you and collecting a tax for you know, some superpower that was oppressing us, you wouldn't be happy about that. Uh, for many reasons. Uh, you wouldn't be happy about the taxes, but you certainly wouldn't be happy that your countrymen was doing that to you. Um, and as Joni mentioned, they often embezzled. So if the tax was 100 bucks, they'd, they'd take 150 and they'd pocket the other 50 because they could, because they had Roman soldiers sitting behind them. And if you didn't, you were in trouble. And so they would extort their countrymen and they became even more hated as a result of that. So not only are you working for the enemy and tr being a traitor, but then you're stealing from your countrymen and making yourself rich. Like it's, so tax collectors were among the worst of the worst in this culture. And so for Jesus to call Levi and then to go dine with a, with a tax collector uh, is a big deal, right? It, the Pharisees are right to be a little upset um, for lots of reasons. Um, and, but then we're, we're told tax, he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. And so there's, there's a distinction there in this text. Um, and here... We can't think about sinners um, as it's used here in the way that we as sort of 
Christian, Christians think about sinners. It's not that everyone is a sinner. I mean, everyone is, that's true. But as we're talking here, the, there's a distinction drawn here between sinners and then the righteous, which he's going to address here in a second. And so we're talking about the good people and then we're, sinners here means the bad people. So the street riffraff, the thieves, right? The, the, the really like the, the, the underbelly of society. Um, and here's Jesus in this room with a bunch of them, okay? Um, and, and these were certainly people that the Pharisees would not only think are bad, but they're unclean. So to even be in their presence would require you then to go through a whole ritual washing process that they would go through in order to clean yourself to be pure again before God. And then we're also told that, who else is in that room or in this house? Taxes or tax collectors, sinners, the Pharisees, right? They're gonna come here in a minute, Um, but lots of disciples, right? Um, So here disciples, uh, disciples will sometimes refer to the 12, the 12 disciples. But here we're talking about more than just the 12 because it goes on to say there were many who followed him. So it's, it's, the implication is that we've got kind of a crowd of people who have been gathering around Jesus as he's been teaching and preaching. Um, And at this moment, he's got that crowd with him. So I'm sure they're huddled around the house, kind of like trying to get through the door uh, because it's not a, probably not a large house. The chances of it being large are slim. Um, And so there's this whole crowd of Jesus' followers and a bunch of sinners, and in the middle of it is Jesus sort of reclining at a table, just chatting it up, having a great time, right? This, to dine is to have this sort of dinner experience uh, with all these people. And then on the scene come the scribes of the Pharisees. So they're not just Pharisees, they are the scribes of the Pharisees. And scribes are a particular thing. Does anyone know what, who the scribes are? No, okay, so the scri- there were scribes in the Pharise- Pharisees, there were scribes in the Sadducees, there were scribes um, sort of assigned or as part of all of these religious sects. Uh, scribes are basically attorneys. So they were the ones who were tasked with and trusted to actually know what the law says. So to be a scribe in this time, I mean, think about what religion meant for these people in this culture. Religion was everything. Every aspect of your life was touched, informed, and dictated by your faith. And so to be a scribe, to be the one that interpreted and told you how to apply the law was to be a very powerful position. They were power brokers. Um, and that's why you would find scribes in the courts. Herod had scribes. The Sadducees at the temple had scribes. And we're told here that the Pharisees themselves had scribes. So these were the scribes within the Pharisees. These are the people who actually did all the studies were trusted to actually interpret and apply the law. And then if you were just a regular Pharisee, you would go out and listen to your scribes and you go out and teach that, right? Um, So to be a scribe is to be a particularly legalistic uh, and well-read and knowledgeable uh, Pharisee of the law. And so it's those, it's the scribes, the Pharisaical scribes that have come to this doorway. And you can imagine they're kind of like trying to peek in. I don't know how, you know, we're using our imagination at this point, of course, right? But imagine that scene. You've got a house packed full of disciples and sinners and tax collectors, and you're a scribe to come to check out what's going on. You peek in, you see this. As one who knows the law and knows it well, you are understandably upset, right? Who is this teacher, this rabbi, hanging out with these people? Here is Jesus doing, actually, he's moving in, in the opposite direction where he should go. Like, rabbi, teacher, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, this is, 
This is absolutely the opposite of thing of the thing that we ought to be doing in order to bring about the renewal of the people of God. And then comes his answer as he hears their question, right? Um, what, what, is he, what is his answer? It's a well-known response, which says it's not those who are well who need a doctor, right? And this is a, this is a parable that is much like a couple of other parables that were well-known um, that said and meant the same thing. So it wasn't just out of the blue for them. They've heard this before. The meaning of that is kind of obvious, right? You don't need a doctor if you're well, you need a doctor when you're sick, right? And so I've come for the sick. Um, and then he goes on to say, what's that last little bit? I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners, right? Um, and this is read obviously with a little bit of irony um, because here again, um, the righteous we know as Christians and uh, who have sort of inherited that tradition of what Jesus says, no one truly is righteous, right? So there's some irony buried in here, but he's certainly pointing and sort of sticking his finger in the Pharisees, the, the scribes' eyes, right? I didn't come for you, right? Jesus, you know, God, you're good in some, in some respects, you, or you think you're good. So I'm not really here for you. I'm here for the people who aren't, um, and so there's definitely some irony there, but it's also true that within uh, the Judaic tradition, and you can go back into Hosea and a couple of places, but you read things like this, think, think when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. You think God doesn't want sacrifices given everything he said in Leviticus and the Old Testament? Like that was part of their thing. So there is this, uh, I don't want this, but I want this. Uh, is, is a way to e- explain or convey priority, right? And it's not that God doesn't want the sacrifices. That's part of the whole temple system that he's set up. It's that he wants more for his people to be loving and merciful and, and seek justice. That's more important. And so if we read this that way, sort of in that tradition, what he's saying is, well, I came for everybody, but I came most. And my priority and my, my care and my time right now is gonna be spent with the least, the lost, the sinners, so that's where I'm gonna put my, my focus. So what do we do with this? Knowing who the Pharisees are, um, knowing what Jesus has said here, what, what do we take away? How do we, how do we look at this and think, okay, this means something, what does it mean, right? Um, Jesus is direct, giving a direct challenge to the Pharisees and that challenge is for them to give up their strict interpretation of Torah, of the law, right? His, his challenge, what he's doing here, says directly to them, the way you're thinking about this, the way you're interpreting it, your focus on purity and holiness, the way that you understand it, they look at Jesus and say, you're going the wrong direction. Jesus looks like, no, 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 you are way off track. Right? It's actually you that are on the wrong track. He, like, he is in their face, and he does this over and over and over, in their face. I mean, think about the, the healings he does on Sunday, the fact that his disciples will go and glean or take, you know, pick wheat off out of the fields on Sundays. Like, they're working on Sundays. Um, and, and the way that Jesus and his disciples kind of really stick it in the face of the Pharisees to say, look, what God is trying to do here, the new movement uh, that, that God is doing here to restore Israel 
demands breaking the law, right? Or at least it demands breaking your interpretation of the law. And so one of the, the sort of wild things that Jesus does is he completely reorients and, and, and re-explains what the law does in the Sermon on the Mount is a big piece to, to that. When he says, you've heard it said, but I say, you know, those, those passages, Jesus is sort of re-understanding for his people what holiness actually means. He says to the Pharisees, you need to put aside your quest for purity and strict holiness. You need to instead embrace your proper vocation. You know what your vocation is? It is a calling, right? It's more than just a job, right? A lot of times we use vocation as a job, but vocation technically, it literally means a calling, the thing that you are called to do. So, and Jesus will tell us that the calling of the church, God's people is to be the salt of the earth, the light to the world. That is the church's vocation. And so in order to do that, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and, and we'll say again and again as the gospels, as we, as we go through them, we'll see, um, you, you have to set aside this obsessant need to follow the letter of every law as you understand it. You need to love people. You need to be willing to set that aside to, to be the light, to be the salt that I need you to be. So let's not forget, let's, let's, let's bring Levi back into the picture for a minute. Put yourself in Levi's shoes, knowing what he does. Think about what your daily life is like. If you have to, just even like close your eyes for a minute. Imagine yourself sitting on a road, travelers coming everywhere. You've got Roman soldiers sitting behind you, looking over you, make, making sure that you do your job, but also that they are paying their, their fair share. Um, and those people will come to you in order to get past, they have to dig into their, whatever they're carrying, bags, purses. I don't know, I don't actually how to carry their money that those days and, and fork over their hard-earned money to you. You know you're not doing the right thing and you know they hate you. And whether it's just a look or a comment, if you're unfortunate enough to find in the marketplace one of these zealous Pharisees, the zealots, the sickery, remember we called them the sickery, the dagger men, you know who they stabbed? Tax collectors, right? It's one of the remarkable things about Jesus's little 12 group is that he has a zealot and a tax collector as part of his 12. That's not without importance. But this is who Levi, you're literally walking through the streets, scared, probably, uh, Maybe a little arrogant, but also knowing that at any moment, somebody's gonna get mad enough to end you, right? You're yelled at on a, on probably on a constant daily basis. You've got Roman soldiers watching over your shoulder. Chances are you're extorting your fellow countrymen and then turning around and having to bribe them as well. You're passing off some to them. Um, and, and so this, this life is not a good life for Levi. He's, he's doing something he presumably knows he probably shouldn't be doing. He's hated, he's shunned, he's yelled at, he's despised by his family and everyone that should love him, by the community that he's a part of. He is the epitome of the people, or the person who the Pharisees would close rank around and shun. This is who Levi is, this is his life. But then comes Jesus and says, hey, Levi, come on, come hang out with me. And he goes and has dinner with them. And so put yourself in that moment for a second. 
You've gone from being isolated, hated. The only friends you have are sinners and other tax collectors. No one else wants anything to do with you. And all of a sudden you find yourself in your home entertaining guests, the chief among which is super rabbi. Remember we talked months ago about that moment when Jesus comes over the hill or down the beach and calls the first disciples, like what that must've been like. Well, this is, this is an equally, I mean, obviously it's a call to discipleship. So it's equally as surprising and perhaps even more so because here is Levi, the lowest of the low who Jesus is calling. And so if you're Levi, this is a moment of just earth shattering grace. All of a sudden your house is full of people uh, you know, sinners and tax collectors who you, you hang out with, but also disciples and holy people, which you would have nothing to do with up to this point. So Jesus crosses lines. He breaks boundaries in some respects and, and he actually does break rules. And he calls Levi out of his world into a new one. And this is where we pick up that theme from last week. That, that soft difference world, that difference, right? He's calling Levi out of this world in which he was a sinner, a tax collector, hated, ostracized, into a new reality, into this new family that Jesus is building in which he's loved, accepted, and dined with. This is a profound moment for Levi. And one of the things we need to uh, realize is that as the scribes are sitting at the doorway, they are looking at Jesus and saying, you're doing all the wrong things. You're going the wrong direction. What we need to be doing is purifying the people so that God can come. And here is, you know, irony of all ironies, here's God himself saying, no, no, no. This is how we act. And there is, I think, a tendency within the church as a whole when we talk about, when we use words like holiness, what does that conjure up in your brain? Right? It, uh, for me, it conjures up kind of this strict uh, righteousness. I, I have in my mind something like Pharisees, right? A lot of Old Testament laws, and, and, and that's what holiness is. But as Christians, we're told, not least of which by, by the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus is God. He's the exact representation of his being. And one of the sort of light ball aha moments for a lot of people, as I've talked about this before, is when you realize if you want to know what holiness looks like, when you, if you want to know what purity looks like, you don't first go to the Old Testament. You first go to Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of everything. If you ever want to know what God looks like, you go to Jesus. And so if you want to know what holiness looks like, you go to Jesus. Holiness does not look like Pharisees' purity. Holiness looks like Jesus. And that's a really important distinction or understanding for the church. Um, a lot of us at times, because we have sort of a misunderstanding of holiness and the way that we ought to live, we end up feeling a little disconnected, perhaps from God, certainly at times from the church, from our church family. Um, and my guess is there are some of us here today that, that feel a little bit about like that. They feel like, oh, I'm, maybe I'm a little dirty. Maybe I'm a little, you know, I'm a sinner. We all are, right? Or maybe I've actually done something recently. And so I feel like I'm on the outs, like I'm not worthy. Um, 
Or maybe it's somebody sitting at home or somebody who's gonna listen to this podcast later. But we all go through those moments and times when we don't feel good enough or worthy enough. Uh, We feel like there's a moral code and a form or a pattern that we have to fit into. And and, And don't hear me say that there aren't moral standards within the Christian life. Of course there are. What I want you to hear is the, the message that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees and to his people is that if you have heard from the church either explicitly or implicitly that you have just picked up the message that you are not good enough or you have done something that means you have to be shunned or put on the outside, that you don't belong because of X, Y, or Z, Maybe it's who your parents are. Maybe it's what happened to you, something that was done to you rather than something that you did. There are all sorts of reasons why we feel like this Jesus doesn't want anything to do with us or this God, this holiness, I can't approach that. And so we feel like we don't belong. You are not unclean. That's the message of Jesus. That's, what, that's his action here. That's what his actions say, is there is nothing that you can do that makes you unclean to the point where Jesus will not come and dine with you, talk with you, visit with you, call you into his family and throw a party with you. There is nowhere that you can go where Jesus won't come and follow and grab you and say, come be part of my family. And I think too often the church puts out messages and we hear messages that say, that's not true. You can't do this. You can't say that. You can't act like that. You can't do that with your life. You You can't have that job. That's not a Christian job. Well, is tax collecting a Jewish or Christian job? Absolutely not. And maybe we need to rethink some of those things as we come into that family. But what I'm saying is there's nothing that keeps you from entering the family except your willingness to respond to Jesus. And so that's sort of a twofold message. For those of us who are part of the church and we feel like we're good and we know we're here, we must remember that. Jesus is God. You wanna know what holiness looks like? Look at Jesus. You wanna know what righteousness looks like? Look at Jesus. It looks like going into the street and finding the least of these, the sinners, the tax collectors, the abhorrent people among us and inviting them in. what Jesus does. There can be no argument against that. And so I encourage us to realize that that is our job to replicate and to live into the example that Jesus has given us, but also to realize in the moments when we feel less than or unworthy that Jesus says, no, no, no. I heard an interesting discussion this week about worthiness. Someone asked, can we ever be worthy of God? Probably not, really, right? But it's the wrong question to be asking. The question is not whether or not we are worthy. The question is whether or not we are loved. Can you earn Jesus' love? Absolutely not. Can you earn his favor? Absolutely not. But it doesn't matter. It's not that you're worthy, it's that you're loved. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, your self-made flesh to live amongst us, to give us your example, to teach us, to put us on the right track. As we read the story of the dinner at Levi's house, we are reminded how easy it is for us to fall into the trap of trusting unreasonable and incorrect moral standards on others that we can often read and interpret the scriptures in ways that are, are unloving, that are burdensome. And in this and many other little stories, we see Jesus teaching us and teaching them that it is ultimately love, mercy, and grace that win the day. And so God, we ask that you would grant us that grace and mercy and love as we certainly are sinners ourselves, that we are not worthy. God, we ask that you would constantly remind us and give us the peace and the knowledge that we are loved and that we are part of your family. And we ask that you would also compel us to give that love, to show that love, to not to shun, not to look down upon others who have yet to live into that reality. We ask that you would give us the wisdom and the guidance to help go to those people and show them the love that you have given us and that you have for them. We ask this in your son's name and in the power of your spirit, amen.